You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for The Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. So the passage for this morning is Psalms 119, verses 33 to 56. Teach me, O Lord, to follow your decrees, then I will keep them to the end. Give me understanding, and I will keep your law, and obey it with all my heart. Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I will find delight. Turn my heart toward your statutes, and not toward selfish gain. And not toward selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. Fulfill your promise to your servant, so that I may be feared. Take away so that you may be feared, not me. Take away the disgrace I dread, for your laws are good. How I long for your precepts. Preserve my life in your righteousness. May your unfailing love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then I will answer the one who taunts me, for I trust in your word. Do not snatch the word of truth from my mouth, for I have put my hope in your laws. I will always obey your law forever and ever. I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. I will speak of your statutes before kings, and I will not be put to shame. For I delight in your commands, because I love them. I lift my hands, or I lift my hands to your commands, which I love, and I meditate on your decrees. Remember your word to your servants, for you have given me hope. My comfort in my suffering is this. Your promise preserves my life. The arrogant mock me without restraint, but I do not turn from your law. I remember your ancient laws, O Lord, and I find comfort in them. Indignation grips me because of the wicked who have forsaken your law. Your decrees are the theme of my song, wherefore I lodge. In the night I remember your name, O Lord, and I will keep your law. This has been my practice. I obey your precepts. Thank you, Sam. All right, so this morning we are going to be continuing our summer sermon series, Words of Life, where we're using Psalm 119, a psalm which is solely about praising God for his word, which we we just heard some of it. And we're using that as inspiration to talk about the Bible. For the past two weeks, we've discussed why we should read it, how we can prioritize it into our daily rhythms of life, and we've discussed what the Bible is. And now for, for the rest of the summer, we, we are going to be talking about ways we can approach and use the Bible effectively and accurately so that it can be useful in drawing us uh, both, into both a deeper love and knowledge of Jesus and uh, help us in our calling as his disciples. More specifically, we're going to be learning ways to, to study the Bible uh, and also how to contemplate and pray through Scripture how to use it in spiritual warfare and for discernment, how to use it in evangelism, and uh, how to use it in our lives as our guide, and, of course, how to use it to build each other up. So all all good things. This is what we're going to be learning for the rest of the summer. So basically, our our desire is, is, is to give you the tools to approach and apply Scripture with confidence and, and with an eagerness to discover what God truly has to say to us and, and, how, and, 
And when we get to that point, we discover how amazing the Bible is in changing and transforming us. So, because as Jesus once said, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So today, my goal is to actually just give us some practical tools for how to study the Bible. And, and when I say study the Bible, this is different than just reading the Bible or doing your morning devotions or whatever, which is great. That's, that's, that's great. We should be reading our Bible and doing our morning devotions and all that good stuff. That's great. But to study the Bible is to intentionally, intentionally give it more attention and to analyze the text of Scripture in a deeper way so that we can attain and apply its meaning and purpose. As David proclaims in Psalm 119.34, which we just heard, Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. So to study the Bible is, is, is to desire that, to seek understanding, to gain understanding of it so that we can be changed by it. So that's what we're going to be talking about this morning, how to study the Bible. And, and I get that for many. This might seem like a daunting task reserved only for pastors or theologians or Bible scholars, but that is a lie. That's simply untrue. That's simply untrue. First, first of all, we need to realize that every Christian, every believer is a theologian. We're all called as followers of Christ, and more than that, we're all given the opportunity and, and, and we're equipped with the Holy Spirit to read and interpret Scripture. And, and one of the amazing things about Scripture is, is that its concepts are both simply attained, simply attained, while at the same time its depths are so deep that one could study it for a lifetime and never reach the bottom. So, so the point is that you don't have to be a master at biblical interpretation to begin to study the Bible, and yet no one is ever done studying it. There's always more to discover and grasp. Secondly, the task isn't as, as daunting as it might seem. Yes, there are those who, who study the Bible in academic ways and in depths and that the average person couldn't go into the original languages and all that kind of stuff, but, but that's not, not, what, not what we're going for here this morning. Again, my goal this morning is to, is to simply help us approach Scripture in a way that we can infer its meaning and purpose to the point where we can grow closer to Jesus and in our understanding of Him. That's, that's the goal. So I'm going to do my best not, not to overcomplicate this or to make it too academic or stuffy. It'll be a tiny bit academic, but that's good. Um, you'd have to pay a lot of money to learn this stuff in Bible college. So you're getting it for free. Besides, you know, when, when it comes to in, in, in interpreting or understanding words and language, you might be surprised to learn that 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 most of us are already naturals at it anyway, because whether we realize it or not, we often intuitively or already instinctually ask the right questions in order to understand what we're reading, don't we? To, to show you this, um, I, I grabbed a random book off my bookshelf at home, and, and I just randomly opened it, and I'm, I'm choosing the first paragraph that I read, actually. And I'm going to read that to you. And as I read it to you, I want you to try to understand what's going on in that paragraph, okay? Is it up there? Yeah, it's up there for you as well. Here we go. So try to understand what's going on. So 
Tork Tudorwith, what a name, right? Seemed well pleased to allow his piglets to scatter while he escaped north and east with the main body of the Vandali host. There must have been a purpose to this mad design, but I could not discern it. Still, we pursued relentlessly, catching them when we could, fighting when battle was offered, but mostly arriving a day behind their latest flight. Futility dogged us, and the constant sun burned us black. Provisions ran low, a persistent problem, nagging as the ache in our empty bellies. Who understands what's going on in this passage? Fully, completely. Yeah? <laughs> no. no. No one. No one. You, you can't, right? Because it's, I just pulled right out of context. So, so naturally, then, what questions came to mind as you read it? I'm guessing they were questions like, what's going on here? You know? What's, what's the plot? What's the setting? And, and what, what events happened before this took place? What, what character is telling the story here? Who's the Vandali host? Why are they fighting? And, and why are they being chased? Who's chasing them? Are the pursuers, why, are, why are the pursuers hungry? Are the pursuers the good guys or the bad guys? Are, are, are the piglets actually piglets? Or is that a metaphor? And on another level, we might ask, what book is this? Right? Who's the author? And, and what genre of book is it? All good questions to ask, to try to bring understanding, right? And for anyone who's actually curious, this, this is a book called Pendragon, and it's written by a Christian author, Stephen R. Lawhead, who's one of my favorite authors. And it's, this book is all about King Arthur, actually, his rise to the throne, and uh, it's written, written from the perspective of Merlin. So if you're, into, if you're nerdy like me and you're into fantasy, highly recommend. Anyways, besides the point, when, when we ask those questions, though, when we ask those questions about that paragraph, what we were already doing was applying the basic tools of literary analysis. So, and then in the same vein, when, when we ask those same types of questions to the Bible, this, this is what scholars refer to as the practice of hermeneutics. Everyone say that word with me, hermeneutics. So biblical hermeneutics is the branch of knowledge that deals with interpretation, how to interpret the Bible. It's a fancy word for the practice of studying the Word of God deeply, observing and asking the appropriate questions which can help us get to the applicable and true meaning of the text. Again, we're basically all naturals at this because we're curious people. In, in fact, we actually learn to ask these types of questions at an early age. If you've ever raised a toddler or spent any amount of time with one at all, you know what I'm talking about, right? They're always asking questions. Why this? And what's that? And why should I? And, and on and on, right? And, and, and they're relentless. And, and hermeneutics is simply the, pra the, the practice of being intentional in doing this with the Bible, right? So it's, it's not that complicated. Though, on the flip side of that, unfortunately, we also tend, as humans, to be naturals at placing our own bias, assumptions, and ideas into what we read as well, which can result in misinterpreting the Bible in a way that suits us or, or agrees with our individualistic opinions. As Charles Spurgeon once wrote, we sometimes read Scripture thinking of what it ought to say rather than what it does say. So 
As Christians, we, we not only have the glorious opportunity to understand Scripture, we also have to be careful to make every effort to do so properly in, in order to avoid misinterpreting and therefore misrepresenting God. 2 Timothy 2.15 says this, Present yourself to God as one approved. And what does that look like? It looks like a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Who correctly handles the word of truth. We have a responsibility to correctly handle the word of truth. So what this means before anything else is that we need to be willing to approach Scripture with humility. Right? Making every effort each time we open the Word of God to set aside our own assumptions or what we think we want the Bible to say and instead do our best to come before it with fresh eyes to, to see and, and with ears to hear, with, with the desire to let God's living Word speak to us so that it can have its proper effect on us. Does that make sense? Part of this, this process is acknowledging and recognizing the difference between approaching the Bible ob objectively versus subjectively. Objectively versus subjectively. And this is what theologians call the difference between exegesis and eisegesis. There's a couple more academic terms for you here. Exegesis means to lead out of or to show the way. In other words, it's, it's the process of objectively examining the words of Scripture and, and allowing them to lead you to their meaning. On, on the flip side of that is, is eisegesis. So that means to lead into, which basically means that's the practice of subjectively reading into the text. It's, it's when the reader places their own meaning, ideas and assumptions, into the Bible, making it say, whatever they want it to. I'm sure you've seen people abuse scripture like that before. Simply put, exegesis allows us to agree with the Bible, whereas eisegesis seeks to force the Bible to agree with us. And, and when I say it like that, most of us would think, yeah, eisegesis, that's, that's not right. Who would do that? Who would do that? But the truth is that reading scripture subjectively happens more than we realize, and, and, and we all do it on some level. We all do it on some level because it's incredibly difficult to be fully objective, especially in our current culture where truth is relative and individualistic, often based on, on feeling. So these days, we, we, we definitely have a tendency to either intentionally or unintentionally come to the Bible through our own cultural lens or with our own preferences, or through the lens of tradition and assumptions, or because your favorite speaker in, interpreted, interpreted it that way on a podcast, or, or, or we might come to it with a desire to prove a point, or to justify our actions, or our political views, which is a popular thing to do right now, or, or maybe we simply just like the sound of a verse or a promise in scripture or whatever, and we want to claim it, and, and, and the end result is, is we pull it out of context as it, as it suits us, or we misinterpret it, or misapply it, or twist it to our liking, sometimes with potentially harmful effects. Or as Peter writes in his second letter about those who twist the words of Paul's letters for their own purpose, they do it with destructive results. So ultimately, what, what I'm getting at is that in order for the Word of God to have its full effect on us, we need to allow it to teach us, 
not the other way around. If the Bible says something contrary to, to our opinions or our desires, it's not the Bible that needs to change. The Bible should change us. We cannot change the Bible. At uh, one point in the book of Acts, Paul and Silas were ministering the gospel of Jesus Christ to some Jews in the town of Berea. And, and it says in Acts 17.11, it says, Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Let's be like the Bereans. Let's be the type of people who eagerly examine the scriptures to find truth. Because while it's great to learn from others about the Bible, you know, whether in, whether in books or commentaries or on a podcast or from a sermon like this morning or whatever, ultimately it's important for us to place the final authority upon God's word. And so to that end, I, I, I want to lead you through a simple tried and true process for studying the Bible, which is often called the inductive Bible study method. And to be clear, I, I didn't make this up. This is a common practice of, of how to approach the word exegetically, or rather in a way that we can objectively allow the text to lead us into its meaning. Of course, before I talk about this, I want to emphasize once again the importance of prayer and allowing the Holy Spirit to lead us into truth. Because taking that posture of humility before the Lord and asking Him to speak to us is how we should approach the Bible at all times. Whether we're just reading it or, or whether we're studying it more in depth like we're talking about this morning, it's always about coming to the Lord in prayer first and asking Him to lead you into the truth. And these practical steps are just going to help with that process. And to that end, the inductive Bible st study method has four steps. Number one is observation. Number two is interpretation. Number three is correlation. And number four is application. So observation, interpretation, correlation, and application. So let's go through each step together. So we'll start with observation. So the inductive Bible study method starts with observation. And you might guess that the purpose of observation is to get to that place where we can objectively read the text on its own terms and within its own context. So two, two of the biggest enemies of observation are familiarity, and as I mentioned earlier, also reading the Bible out of context. Familiarity and reading the Bible out of context. So first of all, we can become so familiar with a passage that we think we already know what it says, and so we just gloss over it, and we just presume the meaning. And even worse, sometimes what we'll find is that what we think of as familiar isn't actually even in the Bible. Like in the story of Noah, let's say, when, when he perseveres in faith even though, even though he gets made fun of and persecuted for building the ark. Right? We know that story, right? We've, but we've become so familiar with that narrative that when we gloss over the passages in, in, in Genesis 5 to 7, we might even fail to realize that Noah actually never gets made fun of and never gets persecuted. 
at all. That's, that's a VeggieTales rendering of the story, not a biblical one, right? Which means that it's obviously not the point of the story either, even though maybe you've heard messages about that. So familiarity is often an enemy of observation. And secondly, it's so easy for us to treat the Bible, as Tim Mackey from the Bible Project calls it, as a, as a grab bag. We treat the Bible as a grab bag. Like we just kind of like open it up and pull verses out of context and, and we end up misapplying the, the ones which sound good to us and then we ignore the ones that don't sound good to us. But we already experienced the issue with that when I quoted that passage from that novel earlier, right? When you pull something out of a context, you have no idea what's going on. Unfortunately, the Bible is abused this way more than any other book. But the process of observation calls us to come before Scripture with fresh eyes and to view and process what we're reading within the context of, of the whole book or the, the whole letter or the whole poem and with the author's purpose in mind. That doesn't mean we always have to read the whole book or, the, or, every, or, or anything like that, but we, we come to it acknowledging that it's part of a whole. And it calls us to ask basic questions like, who is the author? What's important? And who is the intended listener? And what's the historical setting? And what's the culture of the audience? What's the author's purpose? What genre is it? Right? Is it a poem, a song, historical narrative? Is it a law, a prophecy? Is it a parable? The Bible has all of those and more, and so we need to understand what we're reading. And then we can ask, what type of language and grammar does it use? Is it literal, or does it use metaphor, or allegory, or hyperbole, or personification, right? And then from there, we can ask, what themes and what emotions stand out in the text? So just asking Simple questions, and, and these are simple questions which can, which can help us contextualize the passage and therefore help us to understand the original meaning. And so a simple example for this is if we turn to the Gospel of John, we can, we can surmise that it's written by John, one of the disciples of Jesus, and, and is meant to be an eyewitness account of Jesus' ministry and teaching, but he also specifically tells us the purpose of why he wrote it. He says it in John 20, 30, 31. He says this, he writes this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so we can see that his purpose, he tells us, his purpose in writing this witness account and, and even the reason he chose the specific accounts of Jesus to tell us and why he wrote them in the order that he did even, rather than in the order they actually happened like Luke does in his gospel account, he does this to ultimately show his readers that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, so that they believe. So we know his purpose. And in knowing his purpose, 
That means we should then read each chapter and verse of the Gospel of John from that lens. This is why he's writing it. Now, that's not the only lesson we'll find, of course, far from it, but that's the underlying purpose of the whole narrative. Another example is Paul's letter to the Corinthians, which we studied earlier this year. So it's important for us as we study the letter of Corinthians, no matter where we are in the letter, that we recognize that Paul is the author and we recognize his motive in writing to the church in Corinth, which was to lovingly but firmly address their disunity, which was stemming from pride and theological disagreements. And it's also important for us to note the setting and culture of where and how they lived in ancient Corinth, mostly because of the fact that they would have read and understood Paul's letter much differently than we might today in our modern context, since we need to recognize as well that language and, and customs and religions that, that they might be struggling with, all those things change over time, right? And since they're the original audience, it's important that we step into their shoes as much as possible. So observation helps us with that. On that end, I, sh I should mention that not all books of the Bible are going to offer all these all these answers to these observa observation questions, and, and that's okay. For, for example, we don't know who the author of the book of Judges is. But regardless, it's still important to observe as much as we can because the more context we have concerning what we're reading and who it was written to, the more easily we can come to understand its original meaning. And, and to be honest, fortunately, fortunately, most, fortunately, most of our Bibles have already done this work for us Right? Many of your Bibles already have an introduction section before each book of the Bible, which tells us the author and historical context and themes of the book and all that good stuff. So you can just read that, and, and that helps with observation. But ultimately, it's good to go into the text yourself as well and observe what you see. All right, observation leads us to the next point, which is interpretation. Interpretation deals with getting to the root and meaning of what the text is saying. So in taking account of what we've observed of the text, the next step is to ask why. Like detectives at a crime scene, right? Once they've observed all the clues, it's now time to put them together to figure out who the culprit is and, and why they did it and all that stuff. In the same way, once we've observed the text, interpretation seeks to put those observations together to form meaning. And we don't need to get too technical here, but we certainly can, but we won't. To, to that end, I, I'd say that the first rule in interpretation is just to keep it simple and read it like any other book. Yes, it's not like any other book in that it's God's Word and it's, and it's living and active, but yet at the same time, it's important that we read it as it was meant to be read so we can follow the author's train of thought. Like Paul didn't write his letter so that one verse could be, could be taken out. He, he wrote it as a full letter. Right? So we should read it as it's meant to be read or, or w with the idea of how it's meant to be read. And again, which isn't necessarily meant to be poked or prodded or pulled apart all the time. So, so keeping in mind your observations and, and, and the context with which it was writ written, we can just read the passage normally. E even read it a couple of times if needed. And once you've done that, it's then helpful to highlight and consider the specific points or arguments or details that the, that the author is making. Like, for example, when we're 
reading Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. It's important to, to ask questions like, why did Jesus make a Samaritan and, and not a Jew the shining example of being a loving neighbor? Why did, why did he do that? Or, you know, when we're reading about God giving a promise or commandment to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, we can ask questions like, is this promise or commandment meant for all believers for all time or only for that particular audience or that particular time? And why is that? So we, we need to ask questions like that as we interpret. In the same vein, it's also good to consider things like why the author uses certain keywords in, in a passage and then seek to define those words properly according to how the original audience would have read it. For example, when the Bible uses the word heaven, sometimes that word just refers to the sky or the stars, but sometimes it's referring to God's dwelling place. And so, of course, understanding that the way that word is being used will change the outcome of the whole interpretation. And so it's good to ask questions, well, why is this word being used and, and how it's being used? And finally, taking all these things into account, it's sometimes helpful to summarize the passage in your own words, like in a journal or, or something like that. Or if you're studying with, with a group, you can just say it out loud or whatever. So observation leads to interpretation, which leads us to the next step, which is number three, correlation. So last week we discussed how the Bible is one unified or correlated story, which is all about God's redemptive plan through Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, it's important that when we're studying and interpreting parts of the Bible, that we do it within the context of the whole narrative, and that we do it within the lens of finding Jesus in the text. So firstly, in, in, in regards to interpreting the Bible as a whole... We, we should always seek to find out if, if our interpretation or of a particular verse or passage agrees or conflicts with the rest of that particular book and furthermore with the rest of the Bible. And if it agrees or conflicts, we have to start asking why and come back to interpretation, right? It's also helpful to look up and read any cross-references. We talked about last week how there's 63,779 cross-references in the Bible. It's incredible. The Bible's constantly quoting itself and referring back to itself and, and forward as well. So it's important to look at those cross-references, like where the author might be quoting or referring to another verse or passage in Scripture, and then, and then see how they relate to the passage. And sometimes doing this opens up the text in a huge way. For example, when we're reading about the design and descriptions of the tabernacle or the temple, that might seem really boring and really random. Like, why, why is God so specific about all this? Until we go back to Genesis and read the description of the garden and find that God's not just really particular about home decor or whatever, but rather the designs are meant to be a copy of the Garden of Eden where God's presence dwelt with man. And suddenly we see that the temple and the tabernacle are, are these amazing, beautiful things about God dwelling with man in the garden. And secondly, in, in regards to the, to the whole Bible pointing to and, and being centered around Jesus and the good news of his kingdom, it's always important that we seek to understand how the passage we're reading does this. Like, how, how does it point to Jesus? 
Does the passage promise Jesus or point to our need for him or does it explain him or does it feature him or does it, does it hint at his coming or, or whatever else? Again, we should always seek to find him in his word because he told us that the word is about him. And the whole point of scripture is to draw us to him and to teach us how to live for him. So, for example, when we're reading the story of David and Goliath, quite often a popular moral lesson people might draw from that story is that, like David, when we put our faith and trust in God, we can also defeat our giants. Right? How many of you, have you heard that message before? Right. So that lesson isn't wrong, per se. But when we're focused on looking for Jesus in the text, what we'll find is that the whole point of that historical narrative is really to show us that the Israelites couldn't do it on their own. They needed a savior and king to stand in their place and to fight the battle for them. From that perspective, we can, we can infer that David's actions are actually pointing us to the fact that we also need a willing savior and king to fight our battle over the enemy and over sin and death for us, which Jesus did at the cross. And so we see it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And so when we read it that way, putting Jesus, rather than placing ourselves in the hero's shoes, which we're inclined to do, when we do that, it, it hits differently, right? It hits differently and causes us to draw closer to Jesus and see how awesome he is and how much we need him and how much he loves us. But that leads us to the final step, which is application. Application, how does this apply to us? And, and there's a huge difference between knowledge and transformation. There's a huge difference between knowledge and transformation. And, and, and what I mean is that the whole point in studying the Bible isn't, isn't primarily to gain static knowledge, but, but rather it's to renew our minds and sanctify and transform us into more mature and active disciples of Jesus. So as we come to know and interpret a scripture passage's meaning, we should also be humbly submitting to it so that it can have its effect on us. Whether, whether it's allowing it to convict us and draw us to repentance or to confess a sin, or, or whether it's to, to, to challenge us to walk in faith and draw closer to Jesus, or to adjust our lifestyle in some way that's more honoring to God, or, 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 calling us, or whether it's calling us to serve another believer or our neighbor in a specific way, or whether it's to encourage us to share the gospel with a friend, or maybe it'll just draw us to adjust the way we, we approach and relate to God in prayer. Whatever it is, whatever the scripture passage does for us, it's important that we're not just studying it for the sake of knowledge, but rather that we always prayerfully consider how the meaning of the text should apply to our lives and make us more like Jesus and more obedient to him. Does that make sense? Application. We need to apply it to our lives. Allow the text to change us and mold us. All right, so hopefully that wasn't too daunting for you all. I encourage you to take this information and to go home and try this Bible study method for yourself and see how it goes. If you weren't taking notes and you want to revisit this, it'll, we'll, we'll put it on our podcast. It's still on our Facebook page. 
So you can review if you want to. But I encourage you to take this home and try this Bible study message or the method for yourself or with a group or whatever and, and see how it goes. And to be honest, it does take practice. But it's worth it as you, as you dig deeper into the Bible and discover more and more of its riches and its depth. Bible study is simply about submitting to what God wants to say and what God wants to teach us through his word. And, and my prayer, the whole point of this, this series this summer, my prayer is that we as a church would become increasingly hungry for it. That we, like the Berean Jews in Acts, would become ever more eager to dig into the scriptures to find the truth. Because I know that in doing so, we'll become even bolder in our faith, ever, ever more mature as the body of Christ, and more effective as lights of Christ in our city. Let's read our Bibles.